Hey everyone, I'm Mark Talbot from 20 Foot Radius. And I'm Derek Myers from DungeonsMaster.com. I'm Craig Sutherland, and you're listening to Recounting Encounters, a D&D Adventures League podcast. A show where we talk about D&D encounters, D&D expeditions, D&D epics, and exploits from our D&D home games. Hey everybody, welcome to Recounting Encounters. Tonight we are going to talk again about Adventures League, but this time we're going to be talking about some of the new adventures, or let's just say um, adventures that were not Jankonish. We're going to be talking about that tonight. Um, Craig and Derek, I mean, you guys are the ones that do the public play, and you play the expeditions. I haven't been out in a while, unfortunately, but uh, go ahead and uh, let's get speaking, give, uh, give people an idea of what's going on. Indeed. Okay, before we jump into that, though, uh, at the beginning of last week's podcast, we talked about Gen Con. And then the good folks at Gen Con released some new information this week. And some of what we said last week no longer matters. So, uh, Craig, why don't you uh, talk about this for just a quick sec before we uh, jump into the talk about the mods. Indeed, the big change that they made was uh, in regards to the hotel booking. So if you remember what our, what we said about, like, oh, yeah, just, you know, pre-select your stuff and you'll be prepared and good to go. That's uh, kind of at the window now. Uh, so basically, now it is absolutely required. Like, before you had to have a, a housing code. Now it is just completely required. You have to have your badge purchased. So... When you log in to do the Gen Con housing, it's got to be through the Gen Con website exclusively, and you have to have already purchased your badge, which goes on sale the Friday before. So just make sure that's all squared up, and then uh, basically when the um, when they go on sale, and I think it's 12 p.m. Eastern time, if I if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I believe that is correct. Okay. Um, so basically, at the you know as soon as the clock strikes twelve, it's time to to log in and do your thing. But it's not going to be just a mad rush anymore. What's going to happen is you're going to be basically put behind a queue. Now, the way that they've worded it is that you're going to be randomly assigned a number, basically, and that uh, people are going to be checked out. Uh, one at a time, basically. So and there's going to be a lot of people doing this. Just you know. Be prepared for that, and they've even warned us in the in the in the email update. Expect to be there maybe one or two hours if you're doing it the the moment it goes active. So basically, one at a time, people are going to select the rooms that they want, uh, you know, square up with their cards and whatever, and then once they're done, the next person goes in. It's something along those lines, anyway. So it's going to be little less than a little less than ideal. Yeah, I mean, it's a new system, so let's give it the benefit of the doubt and. Uh... Hope that it works better than the previous system has worked. I mean, every year there seems to be some problems, which is unfortunate. Um, but we'll uh, hope for the best and see where it lands us. Uh, thinking back to what we talked about last week around checking out your hotel, sort of know what you want. Uh, that is certainly still good advice. And given that you may be in the queue a hell of a long time, by the time your your uh, window opens for you to actually... Book, go ahead and book your room. A lot of the hotels may be gone, so it might not be a bad idea to pick three or four or five different hotels you'd be comfortable staying at and have them ready. Write them down. Have them in the order you want them. And then just like with a fantasy football draft, you just go down the list. This guy taken? Okay, next guy. This guy taken? Cross him off. You know, same idea. And you never know. Maybe, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I have a feeling what's going to happen is they're going to give you a time limit. They're going to say, all right, you're in the queue. You've got 10 minutes to pick your hotel, book the room, that's it, that's all. I kind of yeah, hope so, because that would be that pretty That did brutal. seem to be what <laughs> they were Otherwise. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, the other the other thing that uh, I mean with Gen Con events, you can pre-select the events, and then when it comes time to buy the tickets, you just say purchase everything that I've already picked. If the hotels work like that as well, then we're we're golden. I mean, then you just cross your fingers and hope that you're in a good spot in the line. But uh, again, until we actually get more information, see what it's like. You know, we don't know. We'll hope yeah, for the best. What would be interesting is that if they give you like five minutes beforehand, you know, log in five minutes beforehand, you pick and choose the rooms that you want, the type of room you want, and the hotels that you want, and then all of a sudden you click enter, submit, and then when your queue comes up, it'll say, we have availability in this hotel, this hotel, this hotel, this hotel, and then you choose the one that you want, book it on the credit card, you're done. That would be great. Now, just so you know, too... Just in case you're uh, you're one of those unlucky saps who gets to the end and uh, you're back of the line and everything's taken, everything else available now is out by the airport or something like that. Um, don't fret. Well, again, assuming uh, that you're okay paying a little extra, usually later in the year, a, a lot more rooms get opened up. All these hotels aren't booking, like holding off all the rooms for Gen Con booking. They do have a lot of rooms that are going to go on a few months later, just for general, like it'll be more money. But if you if you can do it, like if you can afford it, then I mean you can certainly find something further down the road. I don't understand been... why they. I, yeah, I don't understand why they do that. I think that you know, as gamers, you've got eighty thousand people or fifty thousand people coming into the town. Open it up for the gamers because they say the gamers are the most non. What do you call it? Non-violent, non-whatever. You know what though? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Compared to some of the other conventions, I suppose. But uh, the bikers. Well, and also the Indy 500, right? Isn't that their, that too, that their big claim to fame there? Um, but the 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 thing is though that um, I imagine that uh, like they have a deal worked out with uh, with the convention center or with Gen Con or, or whoever that you know they set aside such and such a percentage of their rooms and whatnot for like to give a discounted rate to their to their attendees, but I'm sure all these hotels want to keep some for the general populace as well, right? True. But not for that weekend. Yeah. Well, and you got to think, if, if they put all the room, again, just playing devil's advocate for a second, if they put all their available rooms that they're willing to discount for the con uh, available on the first day and they get sold out, I mean, that's great from a dollars and cents point of view, but that's poor from a public relations point of view because at that point... Anyone who didn't buy a Gen Con badge on the first three days, why would they buy a badge now that they know there's no chance I'm getting a room? Uh, whereas at least if there's this thing of, okay, well, we're going to open up a little bit of room, we're going to open some rooms over the course of the summer, then at least the people, you know, Gen Con may still sell badges. Uh, I mean, you're still going to have people that are unhappy, but at least this way you've got people who have hope. Well, I might as well buy the badge. I may go if I get a room. And another thing, too, is they... They do have a wait list that you can go on to if you don't get to what you wanted or uh, or like all the good downtown stuff is gone. You can go on a wait list to, for something to open up. And I haven't had to do it before, but I've heard uh, good things about it. Yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of people, they, they try very hard to get, get you seated somewhere, basically. Yeah, I was on it one year, and uh, I got to think it was about two months, three months. It was like maybe March, April-ish. Uh, they said, oh, yeah, we've got this uh, This room's opened up. It wasn't exactly the hotel I wanted, but uh, it was in the downtown core, more or less. It was in my price range, and you know, it, it was only a single bed, and I was going with somebody who was a friend of a friend that I didn't know. Not Mark. This was somebody else. And uh, 
So, you know, I took what I could get. As it, as it turns out, the other person I was supposed to go with bailed at the last second, so I got stuck doing the whole room myself anyway. So, you know, in fact, it was a single bed instead of uh, two two double beds. Didn't end up being a big deal. But, you know, at the end of the day, I needed a room. I was coming uh, 10 hours by car. It's not like I could just sleep on the street. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's definitely other accommodations that can be made so but i mean yeah it's nice if you can get it through in the housing it is certainly a lot cheaper to do it through that that way and you know if you can get it through right away it's great because you don't that's just one thing you don't really have to worry about in the lead up to it right so exactly indeed indeed, indeed. steal your line <laughs> yeah. right. i'm sure they're, they're in the months to come we will do a follow-up episode when it comes oh, to uh, sure. setting up them their events Especially if we get screwed. It'll be a lot of podcasts on this one. Yeah, for sure. Gen, Gen Con Part 11. Oh, the housing thing has changed again. <laughs> well, well, let me tell you, the, the, the true stress-inducing thing for me is is getting the uh, event tickets. Most everything is fine, but there's always a few that, you, that you're in there for that that are the hot tickets, and you want to make sure you get it right. Like last year with her getting our VIP passes. Mm-hmm. That was great. But, you're welcome. Yes. <laughs> oh yes, right. Yeah, well, that was you my were, like, awesome spot in the queue. I don't know. I still don't know how it got that. Well, weren't you like you were like sixth place? It was like, sixth. You were, like right yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I was in the oh, queue for like that. ten seconds. It's like you are number six in the queue That's before like, before yeah. I could even do anything else. It said number six, and then I went, "You're done." I'm like, "Jeez, oh, level one." Awesome. I know. And I, like me and Mark were both like in the twenty thousands or something. That was insane. yeah. It was some crazy. Oh well, no, we were in the, we were in the two thousands. Yeah, oh, the 2000s. Uh, so. My memory it felt like 20,000. So. Yeah, basically, it took a while to get through to it, but yeah, uh, it was interesting. Funny. Yeah, that was that was that was pretty funny. Oh yeah, I'm number 2,000. Greg's like, oh, I'm number 2,600, and Derek's like, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. We're in. We got our passes. Going home. Smoke we got them. Yeah, that nice. was pretty good. All right. Okay. Well, enough reminiscing. Uh, we want to move on to these mods. So. We did a previous episode where we talked about the D&D Expeditions. Sorry, before I just go, are you guys good? We got any other Gen Con stuff? I'm just going to barrel on through. Okay. No, no I think we're good. <laughs> Take control there. Take control. That's what you do best. Yeah, okay, good. Shut up. I'm taking control. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, D&D Expeditions. Uh, there are, in the Tyranny of Dragons, there's going to be 13 adventures. And so far... Uh, ten of them are available for DMs. Three of them were available at Gen Con, Defiance and Flan, uh, Secrets of Soko Keep, and Shadows Over the Moon Sea. And those were Adventures 1-1, 1-2, and 1-3. And they were all designed for characters between levels 1 and 4, which makes sense since those were the introductory mods. Most people were coming in with brand new characters. Uh, anyone who was at Gen Con had the opportunity to play all three, and then they were made available to the public for store play, home play, what have you, uh, I think the month after that. And we talked about those in a previous podcast. And I think by now, anyone who's played Expeditions has probably played one or all of those because, well, they've been out the longest. The next batch of adventures that were released, which I believe came out in September, uh, were three more, all level one to fours again. They were Dues for the Dead, The Courting of Fire, and The Scroll Thief. So this was uh, Adventures 1-4, 1-5, 1-6. And uh, so tonight, those are the three we're going to talk about. Now... Uh, I know I have, let's see, I ran Courting of Fire as the DM, I ran the Scroll Thief as a DM twice, and I've, uh, wait, which one did I miss? Deuce for the Dead. I played Deuce for the Dead, I ran Courting of Fire, and I've run uh, Scroll Thief twice. Uh, so Craig, what's your experience with these particular three adventures? I haven't played any. 
but I ran Dues for the Dead a few times. That one, that one, I'm definitely the most familiar with. Uh, oh, you know what? I, can, I I ran one of either Quartering Fire or Scroll Thief. I think you told me the other day, Scroll Thief's the one that you haven't touched at all. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, the reason I'm I'm kind of confused now is because one of the 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 most recent modules gives you kind of a rundown of all of them. So now I'm like, oh crap, which one did I play? Which one did or which one didn't I? <laughs> nice. But yeah. Yeah, so I guess it was um, Courting a Fire I, I ran once and uh, Deuce for the Dead I've run a few times. Yeah. I, I No, I like Deuce. Well, okay, so let's start by talking for Deuce for the Dead. So uh, in a nutshell, this is the first adventure that is a flat-out dungeon crawl. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, Craig, this is your baby. Why don't you talk about this one? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It is a very very straight up dungeon crawl. It's it's the first of of all the the ones that they had released at that point. That was just like a straight up classic dungeon crawl. So basically, uh, it does take place outside of the city of Flan. It's just it's a really prestige sort of graveyard where they worship Kelimvor, and um, it's like you know in a nutshell, there's a bit of role playing at the beginning and and uh, like hey go find out why, why these undead have been. Uh, you know, causing issues for us, and really, that's it. Like, I mean, there's more detail than that. There's M there's an NPC that joins you that can give you a little bit of a history lesson, sort of behind some of the stuff down there. But, uh, but beyond that, is just sort of a, a winding catacomb down there of, of different crypts and and things. But it it's also throws in a lot of really interesting set pieces that you can experience as a player. So I had a lot of fun with it anyway. Yeah, I, I've only played it once, uh, but I have uh, prepped to run it a couple of times, and then we just we never needed to. We, we didn't have enough players to run that extra table. Um, I do have a couple of things I really like about it. I do have a couple of things that I really don't like about it. Um, the the One of the things that I found a little bit irksome is the uh, NPCs that hire you I mean, your adventure, of course, you're hired. They hire you to go on and do this adventure and basically say, go down in our crypts and catacombs and look around and find out what's going on because we're kind of pussies and we can't figure it out. We, we've seen skeletons and zombies and we're scared. And, okay, that's <laughs> fine. You're regular people. I'll give you that, even though you're supposed to be powerful clerics of Kelmvor. But, you know, the story has to be somewhat interesting. Uh, if I remember correctly, they don't give you a map. And I think, it's, I think it's like, oh, it's been so long since we've been down there, we forgot. It's like, give me a break. Like, you I, know what it is? It's it's the uh, the NPC that goes with you. Uh, like in, first of all, she doesn't necessarily go with you, but she's offered to go with you. And if the, if the adventurers allow it, basically, then she has knowledge of basically the first level, which is like which yeah, is like fine, the first right? two rooms or something. Two yeah, or exactly. Like yeah. The first few rooms, and once it starts going down, that's when it's like, oh, we haven't been done here for a very long time. You see. So. Yeah, I mean, from a from a, a gaming point of view, I get it. You don't want to give the characters a map because then they're like, "Hey, look, there's a secret passage here. We better go back and check it out." Uh, you know, there's it's that it's the the fun of exploring a dungeon. I get that. I just found that the story rationale behind it seemed a little weak, and I know that um, you know, in the hands of of a good DM who's maybe run it once or twice, you can come up with some some additional reasons why maybe a map is not available or what you know I, I just i don't buy for a second it's just we don't know as a group as a community as the church that owns this property we don't know to me it was the lamest excuse ever yeah uh, even if they had said oh yeah we have a map but we haven't used it in a long time it's off in the vault and our master who has the only key is not available right now cool i'm okay with like that to me is even a better explanation than just yeah we don't have one it's a small point, but it, it just sort of, for me, it set the wrong tone the first five minutes in. Yep. 
Yeah, no, I, I can see. I, I, that doesn't bother me as much as one of the little things at the beginning, which is so annoying. It's easy to, to just do away with, but they have, like, it's one of those things you find the shortcut that brings you right to the, the, the big bad guys room, right from the first room, basically. Yeah, and uh, I mean it's a little bit of a spoiler, but I think that um, I think the DMs getting ready to run this, even players who are not familiar that you know it, essentially there's a back door to the end of the mod, and like yeah. it's a literal back door, and the NPC who's with you sort of cautions you, and I think it's up to the DM to do one of two things: either have the NPC sell some sort of ridiculous story of why it is too dangerous to go, make it abundantly clear that this is bad idea, or simply say this passage is impassable and make it clear that no matter how much time is spent, you're not getting through because I do know that one of the tables uh, where this, and this might've been the first time you ran it, Craig, if I remember correctly, went through this passage and then ended up having a TPK like half an hour after they sat down. Like it's, it's silly. I, it's stupid I, how powerful it is. Yeah. I did have a TPK, but uh, it wasn't that quick though. But yeah, oh, okay. yeah, it, it, it was, you basically, if you, if you if you end up taking this route, and the thing is, the, the characters won't necessarily know that they've done this, but uh, if if they take this 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 perilous route, then they basically it's it's almost like getting all the big bad guys converging on the same spot to get you. Yeah. Now this, so. now this this dungeon crawl, if you do it if you do it from room to room, how um how long does it take? I know they're set for four hours, right? Yeah. It, it can be done in that amount of time. I, I, I've seen it. Sorry to jump in. I've seen it done in <clears throat> as little as two hours. We had a D&D encounters night a couple of weeks ago where a bunch of people were not, uh, where like two DMs were sick on the same night, and one of the players decided he would step up and run an expeditions. We gave him this one because we knew it was a straight up dungeon crawl, and they completed every room in under two hours. Like it was Most, pretty much yeah. two hours on the money. And I asked him after. I said, "Did you cut out any of the rooms? Did you pull back on the monsters?" He's like, "No." He goes, "This group's an experienced group. They 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 just ran right through it." And I think four is probably more reasonable, at least based on what I've seen in my my times playing it. But Craig, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, no, I think four is good. There's a lot of like flavor rooms too, right? So I think the expectation is that you go through these rooms, you you investigate, and there's stuff to learn about them, and there's there's cool little things that like it's not all just combat, 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 right? There's like there's all all sorts of neat little things and a couple traps here and there. So uh, I I think it 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 does I guess get the explorer sort of part a bit too. As well as having the combat, but uh, yeah, I think four hours is a good one. Like I, I don't think you necessarily will end up running it any longer than that. Right. No, that that's why I was saying. I mean, you were talking about the introduction, how it's really cheesy, and you know they kind of railroad the players into getting into this dungeon ASAP, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the reason why they said they said let's not make a long intro, no role playing. Let's just get into the meat of the grind, meat of uh, the whole situation. Yeah, like I'll, I'll definitely say it's very sort of Gygaxian, I, I would say, in, in its design, with just sort of like these, these weird little things that are that are just there, right? Like, yeah, I don't know, it, it's fun. It though. was yeah. After I played it, because uh, when I played it, I had not prepped the mod, so it was all new to me. I, I Craig actually ran it uh, uh, for the group that I was playing with, and I after I was done, I went back and read through the mod, and I found it did. You're right, absolutely right. It reminded me of some of those old Gygax modules where there were like little details put in there. For the DM that the players may never really catch on to, but it was just more flavor so that when you're reading it, it's not just dry. You go into a room and it's got this stuff and the monsters will come out and then you move on to the next room and it's, you know, it gave you a little bit of flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing I just want to, or two other things. One is, so going back to the map, 
uh, for DMs, there is a map provided at the end oh, of the mod. Right, right, right. The map is, it's not actual, it's not to scale. That Like, it's it's clearly been drawn out by hand by someone, as many of these maps are, and it looks nice, but it is not accurate. Yeah. So, you may want to, and I know on the forums there's a thread on all of these modules, and for this one particular, somebody has drawn, redrawn it on perfect graph paper based on all the descriptions in the rooms, and just, I know when I was getting ready to run a second time, I printed out this updated version from the forums, uh, and I think that uh, that would have helped a lot, especially if you're a group that's using the the minis with the one-inch grids. Because uh, I know when Craig did it, he had to constantly expand the size of the room. We had a big party, but I mean, he had to constantly expand the size of the rooms. And then you realized as he's reading the description that he's obviously had to make some adjustments on the fly because what the room says and then what the room actually looks like don't always match up. Again, yeah. small detail, but a DM running at cold it could realize after it's too late, crap, I've drawn the room, and now I have to make changes, and now I look silly. Another important thing to keep in mind with this one is that there's actually a lot of errors in the text, too. Uh, well, maybe a lot, not a lot, but there, there are definitely a few pretty big errors. Uh, for example, I know one of the rooms references, oh, if this trap in this room is triggered, that means this happens, but there is no trap in that room. So, like, there's, I think they, they I think the design changed a couple times, but maybe the text wasn't fully caught up <laughs> in all uh, in all spots. So, there's yeah. a couple of inconsistencies, but yeah, for sure. Um, one of the other things, and I know we've talked about this a couple of times, is, and I'm, we're going to talk about it. I think for all three of these mods, is the idea of treasure. Uh, it's basically it's a cheat. There is treasure in the module, but it is abundantly clear that the character should not take any of it. I mean, there, it, it, in this case, you're in a crypt, and this is people who have history in this town. Their families have paid for them to be here. They're the honored dead, but many of them have been buried with personal, valuable possessions. And it's especially if you bring the NPC guide with you, she's constantly telling the party, don't take anything. You're here yeah. to fight monsters. You're here to find out what's wrong. You're not grave robbers. And... At the end of the mod, when you count up all the treasure, like 99% of it is stuff you could loot from the tomb. And there's a lot of it there. But it's very clear through the course of the adventure text that good aligned characters or characters who have this guide with them really shouldn't be taking anything. And it's really a it's a screw you to the players big time. Yeah, for sure. The um, Although I have to say, I did have one group that had um, a player who had uh, the kleptomaniac flaw. Basically, they wanted to steal everything, so it, it did lead to some humorous uh, situations. Well, or anyone who's the arcane trickster that has the mage hand, that can that certainly yeah. had our group. We had uh, one of our characters had that, and he got a lot of choice items uh, using the spectral hand. So, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, but speaking of magic items, though, yeah, that one is actually a very useful item to certain characters. The magic item that shows up in that, like the one that is actually for characters to keep. Yeah, well, and again, it's it's literally given to them at the beginning. Here, we want you yep. to go investigate this tomb. Here's a magic item to make your adventure easier. And it's again, it seems to me through the through the way the adventure is presented that this NPC, it seems to me, would expect the item to be returned at the end. Although it doesn't explicitly say that in the text, and greedy player characters are certainly not going to give back a magic treasure, but... Again, it sort of seems silly that they, oh, well, you know, we've had this hanging around, and it's a useful tool that we use, and we're going to give it to you, 
and we're never going to see it again because you're just going to leave after you've sorted out this particular problem. Right. So, but it is. It's a good item, and uh, I, every group that I've played with has has found someone who can really put it to good use. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, that was uh, DDEX 1-4, News for the Dead. So the next one on the list is uh, DDEX 1-5, The Courting of Fire. Uh, so I have played this once and run this once, if I remember correctly. That sounds right. I definitely run it once because I can remember it. Did you run it first before you played it? No. Wait. No, you know what? I did not play this. I think I no. I was going to play this one, and then I think I ended up playing that Deuce for the Dead at your table. So this oh, okay. one, I've I've been the DM. I've run it once, and I you've run it this one as well, Craig. Yeah, once only once, like yeah. back when it came out. So if I and again, some of these I haven't run in a while, and they start to all sound the same after a while. I know, I know. If I remember correctly, with this one, it's distinctly divided into two parts. Part one is role playing investigation, almost no combat or I don't think there's any combat, unless your characters do something stupid. And then the second half is a smaller dungeon crawl where they, they've got to sort of find the secret dungeon. And, like, that's what they're looking for in the first half, is where you know where is stuff happening and what's going on? Oh, it's in the secret dungeon. Then they got to find the secret dungeon. And the second half is they find the secret dungeon, and they go there. And it's a lot of... Con- I mean, it's a dungeon exploration. Of course there's monsters, and then you go down, there's combat. Um, does that sound right to you, does, Craig? Does that ring... Yeah, this is like this is the one with like the druidic temple and yes. kobolds and stuff, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I remember. The, I, I remember specifically. I remember the villain, the NPC villain in this. I didn't like saying his name. I honestly don't remember what his name was, but if you recall, on a couple of, a podcast a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how there was a module where the characters didn't realize that the NPC was the villain, and he managed to talk his way past them, and he had the magic item, and he left. Was this, this was the one? module? Yeah. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. The yeah, way I, I described it in the previous podcast was not entirely accurate, but it made my point a little bit clearer. But that's right. pretty much what happens in this, is the big bad guy, when you meet him, you don't necessarily know if he's, quote, bad guy, because he sells a pretty good case for why he's the good guy and essentially why you should let him do what he's there to do. Right. And if, if that's the case, as it was in my group, they said, all right, mission accomplished. And you still get experience for defeating them because you've overcome the challenge. But if you don't kill them, you're not going to get his magic item or her. I think it's a guy. Um, yeah. But and again, it's not like a it's a flaming longsword that you clearly see as a magic item. He's got an item, but it's it's a subtle item that doesn't have a visual effect. So you wouldn't number one, you wouldn't know this is the big bad guy. Number two, you wouldn't even know he's a villain, depending on how the DM chooses to run it. And number three, you really wouldn't have any idea that he's even got a magic item since magic is supposed to be so rare. What are the chances that every bad guy you meet has one? Yeah, so, exactly. I, I mean, one part of me, as as a creative as a creative DM who likes to come up with cool adventures, I liked how that sort of played out. But as a player playing it, not that I played it, but as a player, if I'd sort of learned this after, I would I would really feel cheated that hey, if this was supposed to be in the treasure drop. Uh, something should have changed. And Mark, I think you had a suggestion that in a case like that, then maybe the item is still awarded to the characters, but to try and figure out some different way to do it, whether it's a different monster or they find it in a secret compartment or they complete the quest. And as part of their already established reward, their patron is so happy they give them the item or something along those lines. 
or something or something very similar something equivalent i mean i know craig and i talked about that last week so that was uh one of those things you can't cheat them out of the magic items especially if it had to do with let's say they use ample roleplay not to combat the guy and, and loot his dead body at the end right that's what we were talking about mostly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. no i think i again i i i'm pretty sure we came up with two or three well you guys came up with two or three really good alternate ways to do it and if I run this one again, I am certainly going to keep that in mind because I really liked the way that I approached the the positioning of the NPC, and I would certainly try and take the same tactics with a new group because I, I thought it was a creative way to do it. But I don't think I would I would have the item disappear with the guy. I think I would try and come up with some better way to reward the party for, in their eyes, completing the the accomplishment in a creative way that didn't resort to violence. Yeah. Um, okay. The, oh, speaking of which, sorry yeah. so to interrupt you, remind me to, I don't want to say anything here because I don't want it to be a spoiler, but remind me to tell you about uh, one of the modules, something about one of the modules that relates to this later. Okay, that's vague. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so with this Courting of Fire one, uh, the other criticism I have, uh, again, it's not a very harsh criticism, but um, the way the dungeon is set up, it's basically uh, like a cross shape, and you come in at the bottom of the cross. You come in, and then once you get through the main room, you've got three different areas you can go, right, left, or straight. And if you pick the correct route in the first try, you end up facing the bad guy. Right? Like Basically, it's three doors, and two of the doors lead to further exploration that eventually come to dead ends, and you have to turn around. And the third one is there's the bad guy. And now, fortunately, my group, uh, they systematically, uh, you know, tried some things and, and they fortunately picked the big bad room on the third try. So they got to explore the whole dungeon and then face the bad guy. But again, I just thought it was kind of a poor setup because a, a group that just comes barreling in and then picks the right door has this confrontation. If they end up fighting the bad guy, he's pretty tough. Like, there's a good chance a low-level party might die. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then once you realize, hey, this was the bad guy and you've sort of quote unquote accomplished the mission, you really don't have any motivation to continue searching the dungeon other than the sheer greed of searching the dungeon, which I mean, player characters are greedy and they're probably going to do that. But to me, it was again, poor decision, poor creative decision to design the dungeon in this particular shape. Um, again, it was nice that it wasn't just your straight up box, but I don't know. Maybe if maybe if it was instead of the cross, maybe if the three points of the cross eventually looped around to connect to each other or something, might have been a little bit more inspired. But I don't know. I just I didn't care for it. Yeah, I, I can uh, I can kind of agree with that too. Like uh, like you said, I I I agree with the the idea that it's great that they had this sort of different design and it it felt you know like it more of a druid temple, right? Like as opposed to some sort of dank dungeon, um, which is what it was supposed to be, but. But yeah, like you said, depending on what door you walked in, you could kind of cheat yourself out of lots. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did I did really like about this dungeon is there were a number of traps in the dungeon that made sense for being there. It wasn't just the, the, a dungeon creator uh, writing up a module who went, oh, you know what, we've got 20 rooms, I should put traps in three of them just to keep this thing balanced. There were definitely traps and hazards, but they made sense for the positions they were put in, and they 
characters, uh, players and characters who had a, uh, you know, uh, an objective look at the rooms uh, would very often think to themselves and quite often say out loud, you know what, that doesn't look right or that looks dangerous. And in many right. cases, that turned out to be dangerous. It wasn't always just, oh, it's an invisible booby trap and unless you roll perfect, you're never going to find it. it in many <laughs> cases, it was there. It clearly served a function and it was somewhat visible in many cases. And in some cases, there was like a counter mechanism that wasn't crazy difficult to figure out, but a little bit of thought. It was that sort of puzzle solving. There was a lot more of that element. It was, I mean, like I said, this, this dungeon took half the mods, so there were not many rooms to begin with, but that that side of it, I did think, was done really well. You know what? I've, I've actually noticed that that seems to have been the case for most of the uh, for the uh, expeditions uh, modules that things like that like not necessarily just trash but things are there for a reason it's not just like thoughtlessly plopped down there yeah no I, and i like that a credit that's a credit to the authors and a credit to uh, yeah. the creative team because they i'm sure they provided some guidelines to the authors and said you know we need to cover some of these points and they probably give them some guidelines if you're going to do a dungeon it should have a little bit of this a little bit of that and a little bit of the other thing so yeah and like and it feels like there's some thoughts put into it like it like it gives you some even some basic background stuff and, and some story stuff to like this is the reason this is here right and like in some cases like in some of the stuff in flan it was like if you've been a long time realms player uh, you're like whether it's video games or not or you know just a, the the pen and paper game or even just a reader, you're, you're sometimes going to catch the the odd reference to, to something here and there. So it's very much appreciated that they kind of take that that uh, kind of effort. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's move on to our third mod for discussion here. Unless you have anything else, Craig? Nope. Well, sounds okay. good to me. Uh, okay. This one I know very little about. So yeah, I was going to say, and and it's this. I actually did them in the backwards order. I did six, five, four. So this is the one that I've played the longest time ago, and I've got the more. So this, some of the details may be a little rusty. Uh, this is DDEX 1-6, The Scroll Thief. Uh, I actually like this one a lot, uh, but following up on one of the questions Mark asked earlier, how long does it take to run? I've run this twice, and at both slots it's taken me five hours, and in both cases I've really felt rushed to get it finished in five. Now, in both cases I had groups that had some experienced players, some more mature players who really thrive on that role-playing side of it, the investigation side, the character interaction side. Uh, I mean, hey, don't get me wrong. They love to hack and slash monsters, but it wasn't a group of, uh, you know, hyperactive 13-year-olds who were like, yeah, we don't care what they have to say. Just point us towards a monster so we can stab them with our swords. And the mod is designed like that intentionally. And uh, by giving players an opportunity to interact with everything that's presented, you're going to need to spend some time on it. So... Be warned for that one right up front. Of all the mods that, that it, well, no, I want to say of all the mods, but this is definitely one of two that I think are almost impossible to finish in a four-hour slot if you do everything. Uh, much like the one we just talked about, it's divided into two sections. Uh, the first section is uh, investigation. I mean, it's called the Scroll Thief for a reason. There's uh, some scrolls that have been stolen and some tomes and some books. And then the characters need to investigate some leads uh, to find out what other people may know about the books, about the, the break-in, about the potential thief or thieves. And then once they get, uh, once they start to get a sniff of where they need to go, uh, they actually find some pretty uh, blatant clues once they, you know, it's, it's, it's like that thing, uh, 
Once they know they have to go into the red house, when they go in the red house, they basically find a note that says, so-and-so lives here. He is the thief. Like, it's it's not quite that blatant, but it, there's a couple of sort of big clues that once they get those, it points them exactly where they need to go for the rest of the mod. And um, once you're once you're hot on the trail of the of the scroll thief that the adventure is named for, it becomes a, a chase mod, sort of for the second half. You chase this thief through some. Again, I don't want to go into too much detail, but you chase the thief. There are a couple of hazardous combating uh, situations. I actually, when I was running this the first time, I cut out one of the combats altogether because at that point I realized it was just uh, filler. Like it didn't really add anything to the story, and we just sort of did it through narration. I didn't want to. I didn't want to slow down the time because we were already running long, and I didn't feel that the characters, uh, if they had expended the resources to actually participate in the combat, would be anywhere near uh, powerful enough to feed the final adventure. The final encounter for this is a real showpiece kind of encounter. If you don't generally use maps for the 5th edition, this is one where I strongly encourage DMs, bring your grid paper, draw out the map, it's not a complicated map, but it is a large area. And bring your minis and do it by the numbers because there is a ton of stuff that's going on here. Uh, this final encounter is the first time... And this is a little bit of a spoiler, but um, this, this is the final encounter. This is the first time that you engage any sort of a monster that gets layer actions, which is a new mechanic for 5th edition where... When you encounter a powerful monster in their home or wherever they've decided to, to live um, or, or lair or whatever, uh, in addition to the monster getting a turn on their own initiative, at, I believe it's at the top of the order, at a 20 in the initiative order, the, they, there's something special they can do or they can trigger in the lair. Uh, usually it's something offensive and or something defensive, uh, depending on how the fight is going. And this was the first time I had I had, had an opportunity to use it, and it was devastating. The party was almost wiped out. And I talked to another group that played this a couple weeks later, and they did have a TPK in this. Uh, now yeah. my group, my group had some level three characters. My group had some level four characters. My group had some hot dice that rolled some crits when they needed the most. We did have some characters fall down. We did have some characters that had they taken another hit, they, that would have been it. It would have been done. Um, the, the, the player's dice got hot at the right time, and it was a very fun encounter with a lot of memorable risks. Characters decided to just, I'm going to do this because it's cool, and if it works, it could be awesome. And most of the things they tried worked really, really well. But it was a really tough fight, and it was a really fun fight. And so DMs, if you're prepping this mod, make sure you leave yourself enough time to run this final encounter and give it the time it deserves because this is the pinnacle of the adventure, and if you don't if you don't give this the, the time it deserves, you're almost going to cheat your players. You, you you bring them to the end, and then you're sort of oh by the way, and then this happens. Thank you for coming. Good night. Um, <laughs> yeah. So keep that in mind. Uh, so now, Craig, I mean, you guys and Mark, you guys haven't played it, so I don't really know if there's too much more we can talk about. But is there any questions or anything that I brought up that you think we want to talk about anymore? That sounds like fun. Yeah, no, I like it a lot. It's uh, it's definitely one that I, I would look forward to running again. It's I, With my home group, we, we're running D&D Encounters right now, but when we're done that uh, and we're ready to go back to some level 1 to 4 play, I think I'm going to pull up this role, Thief. I think they'd like it a lot. Yeah, well, I, I know the um, 
I know I was there. I think I was there a couple times when you were running it and I was running a different one. But I remember every time you were always still in the thick of it <laughs> when, I, when my table was wrapping up and ready to go. So I've always known that one to be a long yeah. runner. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, like any mod, you run it a couple of times, you start to realize where you can trim the fat a little bit. And as a yeah. DM, you know, just make that call. But uh, I, I, I'm... A lot of these mods are designed in a two-part fashion. First part is role-playing investigation, uh, and then the second part is combat. And I find that with some of these, you get so caught up in the first half that you really have to trim back the second half. And some of the newer players especially, they, they want a chance to try and work the characters in combat. And when we keep cutting out encounters, combat encounters, because you have a time limit, uh, to me that's sort of a cheat. So I like to try and, where I can, make sure that the, you know, if it's divided, and mod's divided into two parts, try to get each of the two parts equal time in the slot you've got ahead of you. And we had that same problem at Gen Con, right? Our DM tried to rush through some of the stuff at the end of the mod. Right. I kind, of, I kind of felt that it, I don't want to say it ruined the experience, but it certainly you feel like che cheapened that. it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you, if you can't give me that time, then let's let's figure out a better way to get to the end of this mod. Yeah. Yada yada the best part. Exactly, exactly. Didn't even mention the bisque. Um, <laughs> I honestly... Boom, boom. There we go. <laughs> Delayed reaction lap. It was. It really was. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember what the magic item or items... I think... I want to say there's a couple of consumables, a couple of scrolls. I mean, you, obviously, it's called the Scroll Thief. I don't think this is a spoiler, but you have to go to a library or a university or something at the beginning. That's where the scroll was stolen from. Dun, dun, dun. Who would have thought? And I'm pretty okay. sure the people that hire you... They give you or they can sell you some scrolls that will help you through the course of the fight. Um, and if you don't use it, obviously you get to keep it. And if you're a wizard, you can pen it in your spellbook. Uh, I know that in part of this, the NPC that you're tracking is known to have a very powerful magic item in his possession. And during the course of the story, the item is destroyed to advance the plot. And again, my guys seemed really ticked off about that. Because they didn't know that it was written in the mod that this is how you get from A to B to C is from B to C, the item gets destroyed, which then allows you to get to C. They sort of just felt that they were too slow because it's during the chase phase of the module. And they're like, oh, if we'd been faster, we could have got this item. It's like, no, no matter what you do, the item gets destroyed. Um, but there is Thank still, that's not the treasure though. That's just part of the, the narrative of the story that the NPC has this item and he uses it to trigger the end of the story. Indeed. That yeah. seems to be another thing that, uh, well, at least a, a couple of the mods have sort of unavoidable situations that uh, the characters might think that they're, uh, that they failed or that they're to blame for the, for the outcome, not knowing that actually some of the stuff is actually just part of the module. Yeah, and I know that a couple of the, a couple of times I've revealed, oh no, because especially when the players beat themselves up over it, and they're like, oh man, if only this, if only that, or if they're blaming someone, if you had done this differently, we wouldn't have been in this mess. <laughs> yeah. I step in and go, you know what, it wasn't going to make a difference. But in some cases, I don't tell them, because I know that they as players have the opportunity to replay these mods with different characters, right, and yeah. although we haven't seen a lot of it yet, I know with 4th edition, we did see a lot of that, where players would play a mod and go, oh, you know what, this one's got a lot of traps, a lot of sneaking, a lot of, you know, I'm going to come back with like a rogue, or a or a bard, or a character that's that's got the right tools, the right skills to really shine in some of these really interesting encounters. And yeah, it's a little bit of metagaming, but if you're running it for a second time, it, much like the layer salt, you should be able to use your knowledge as a player in your second run through the different character. I mean, don't ruin it for a group that where everybody else is new, but at the same time, 
in some cases, if you think, hey, if I come in and I've got this guy and he finds the trap quickly enough and we can open the secret door and chase the guy, uh, we might get this other treasure. So I'm going to come in with a really, really good booby trap rogue guy. Hey, great. If that's what's motivating you to play it again, bingo, do it. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, of course, then your second time through, you realize, oh, man, it was just a cheat all along. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully you have fun along the way. Yeah. So anyway, those are the three. Um, I would say of the three, uh, based on my experience, um, I, I I really like the Scroll Thief, although it's really long. I like the Deuce for the Dead because it's that old school dungeon crawl. Um, Courting of Fire is probably my least favorite of these three. Uh, Courting of Fire is probably the one I would be least likely to run again if given the opportunity. Um, but I think that all three of, in my opinion, I think these three mods are all better than the two previous ones, The Secret of Soko Keep and Shadows of the Moon Sea. I didn't, personally, I didn't really care for either of those. I would be, I would sooner run any of these three over either of those previous two, if given the opportunity to do them again. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I and, think, oh, I can't speak to Scroll Thief, obviously, but uh, for Courting right. of Fire and Deuce for Dead, yeah, definitely, I think those were, um, those were stronger than uh, the, the previous two. Yeah, and I, I mean, in all fairness to the people who wrote those other mods, because, I mean, writing the mods is a lot of work, I suspect that they were under a tighter deadline because they had to oh, yeah, out, for sure. out for Gen Con, whereas these yeah. other ones, I think they had a little bit more, I mean, I don't know, but I got to think they had a little bit more time, a little bit more flexibility. Definitely they would have had more time with the finalized rule set, so they might have been able to tweak it a bit. And, uh, and, and you know, the modules that come after these ones, I thought, I, in my opinion, I thought were even better. And I think, again, that speaks to the fact that by the time the authors were writing these mods that came out later and later, they had an opportunity to see 5th edition in action. Maybe yeah, for sure. play through some of these older ones and go, this works really well, I'm going to borrow that. This, not so much, I'm not going to make that mistake. Yeah, Agreed. some of the... Some of the later mods have had they've incorporated a lot of great things and like interesting design choices and they've done some cool things with the with the factions and stuff because like the first batch don't really have a lot to do with the faction just at the end you get a renown point at the end. Well, but, the Defiance and Flan five I think do a really good job. Each of the five missions deals with each of the five yeah, factions, yeah. but, but the it's other like an introduction mods, to it, yeah. right? So, yeah. But yeah, but the the later ones have started to like put cool things in there and it's, and it's not you know like some other organized play things have it where it's just like you start here's a secret objective for for your faction go this one is they do it a little different they, they make it a little more organic and build it right into the story so yeah, yeah like you know, i don't want to say to spoil it but but there's there's definitely some i really like the way they've handled some of it thus far yeah no i, I there was a mod i was running not too long ago where essentially uh, again, this is a pretty vague description, so I don't think it's a spoiler. I'm not going to say which mod it is. It, it, during the course of the adventure, you find an NPC. And really, the encounter can take 10 seconds. You can go, oh, yeah, go on your way here. Do you know this? No, you don't. Thanks a lot. Or you can actually bring the NPC along with you for part of the adventure. They're not a combat NPC, but they can provide you with information, and they're a companion. By bringing them through the rest of the adventure, the NPC learns what you learn, and then you find it at the end that they are actually a member of one of the five factions, and anyone in the party who is that faction gets a bonus renown for helping the faction, because this NPC is actually a very senior member. But you don't have any idea of that. It's not mentioned. The characters would never know that. It all reflects on your choices you make while dealing with this NPC. And and that's definitely the kind of thing that I've really enjoyed with, with some of these later mods, 
is just the way that these these little side missions are, you know, just sort of not even side missions, but the way they're just like you said, blended right into the story. Yeah, I would say a tip for players that when when you're playing these. Uh... These these scenarios st- keep track of your your renown points and keep track of what rank you are within your faction because that does come up in some of them uh, as well uh, as a um, as a DM uh, for for some of these details that that come in just like pay pay good attention to it and like just set yourself up ahead of time with finding out what people have in terms of renown where they are in their rank and you know what factions they have because a lot of this stuff does come up later and sometimes the players don't really have a prompt and find out are they prominently displaying their you know their uh, their affiliation with said faction or not like this, sometimes it's like the details do matter so if you take go that extra step to sort of just clarify that right from the beginning and just make a note to yourself then like that can make it like so much up it just makes it that much better in the in the game so yeah i've also found uh in my home game one of the things that's come up is do the characters in the party know what factions the other characters in the party belong to. And and that speaks obviously to the point you made, Craig. If I wear my symbol on my chest, everybody knows. Yeah. But if I choose to keep it if I choose to keep it hidden, am I hiding it from this party? And you would think that as a party, probably not. And over the course of the life of the adventuring party, they're gonna eventually figure it out. But for a new group, it could matter. And and in a scenario that we had just recently in my home game, uh, you know, they needed a, a, an NPC arrives and says like I need help from a Harper, and the guys that encountered him in the party were Zintarum. They didn't know that the, the other player character was a Harper, so they had no reason to mention to this other character, "Hey, we found this guy. He needs the help of a Harper." They just said, "We found this guy. We're gonna try and help him." And had they had they put two and two together, the NPC engages a Harper quietly and provides a wealth of information. But if the party doesn't know that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, and I, I, I'm trying to work it subtly into the into the course of the narrative uh, of the game, but I don't want to just tip my hat and have them go out loud. Everyone he meets, hi, are you a Harper? Oh, hi, are you a Harper? That seems kind <laughs> yeah. of silly, but yeah, yeah, um, sure. but is that kind of thing? So yeah, it's, the details can make a difference, and uh, once you know this information, uh, just, just see what you can do to make use of it. Yeah. Julio. Indeed. Yes. Have anything else to talk about? No, I think we're good. Fantastic. This concludes this week's podcast of Recounting Encounter. Join us next week as we talk about something else. Until next week, have a blast. Indeed. You can follow me on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM, and be sure to visit DungeonsMaster.com for original D&D 4th edition material, including a weekly field report of my D&D Encounters experiences. And follow me on Twitter at 20foot and visit 20footradius.blogspot.com for your weekly dose of D&D encounters. That's 20footradius20ftradius.blogspot.com. Until then, have a blast.